Well, let's uh, come together and have a word of prayer. We'll begin. Father, thank you for this time, uh, this semester. We've had to meet together these weeks. Look at the book of Acts. We pray you'll give us understanding as we finish up tonight. Thank you for the word. And we know that it is the major thing that brings about our Christian maturity, our sanctification, our growth. And so we're thankful to learn about the Word, to understand the Word, to know the Word, because it will penetrate our minds and correct our thinking, enable us to think your thoughts after you. Bless us as we look into this section tonight, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So we're looking at page 45 in our notes. Let's review just for a moment. I don't know what happened to that, but <clears throat> we're looking. We're looking at Paul's uh, uh, imprisonment at. Well, we looked last week at his imprisonment at Caesarea. Uh, he was taken uh, out of Jerusalem to Antipatris and then on to Caesarea. You remember there had been a riot in the temple, <laughs> and the um, the commander of the fortress Antonio didn't know exactly what to do with Paul. He couldn't examine him under torture because he was a Roman citizen. So he decided to send him to the governor. The capital of Judea was in Caesarea. There's the the Roman capital. And that's where the Roman governor had his residence where he normally stayed. He would visit Jerusalem. So he goes there and he is taken to the promontory palace there, which that's kind of a drawing of what it probably looked like right on the right on the edge of Caesarea there. And they had cells underneath the palace or in some section of the palace to keep prisoners. Paul is taken there. And first of all, he's taken before the Roman governor, Felix. And you remember, he comes before Felix a number of times. It says uh, in chapter 26 and... Uh, I'm sorry, not chapter 26. It says in chapter 24 and verse 25, um, he, he's brought before Felix and his wife Drusilla. And uh, Felix seems to be under conviction here. He Paul speaks about faith in Christ Jesus. And uh, he says... He kept call, even though he didn't like what Paul was saying, I guess it was convicting to a certain degree. Notice verse 26. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. These many officials were corrupt, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. Well, two years passed. Paul's in prison. Felix is replaced by another Roman governor by the name of Festus there in chapter 25. And Paul presents a defense before Festus. Festus becomes governor in order to uh, uh, greet the Jews and make himself known to the Jew to the Jews. He comes from Caesarea down to Jerusalem, and the Jews take up the case of Paul. Remember in Jerusalem, they say, "Listen, we've got this guy who caused this disturbance. We, we'd like for him. Would you bring him down from Caesarea? He's in prison." He's in your palace. Bring him down and let him be tried here in front of us. And, Ces- and Festus, you know, he's new. He says, well, I'm going up to Caesarea in a few days, eight, eight, ten days. You come on up and make your charges in chapter 25 there, verses 1 through 12. So they do. And they come up 
and uh, they make these, uh, they bring Paul out and so forth. And Festus says, you remember, Paul, would you be willing to go down to Jerusalem and stand trial there before me? And Paul is very fearful because, remember, the Jews decided, if we can get Paul out of the palace somewhere, we'll kill him. We'll, we'll, we'll ambush and kill him. Paul is aware of this, so Paul appeals to Caesar. He says, I appeal to Caesar, chapter 25 and verse 11, which was the right of a Roman citizen who was in some provincial setting to appeal his case to the authorities in Rome. So Festus says, okay, if that's what you want, we'll send you there. But in the meantime, uh, Festus consults with Herod Agrippa II. Now, Festus is the Roman governor, but there's also the Herodian dynasty. Remember, Herod the Great had ruled over all this territory as a client kingdom. Then three of his sons ruled over it. But then the first one, Archelaus, because of his misrule, was replaced by a Roman governor, people like Pontius Pilate and so forth who condemned Jesus. So you had a series of Roman governors here, and you had the descendants of Herod. Herod Agrippa II here, remember we talked about him. He is uh, the son of Herod Agrippa I, Acts 12, remember eaten by worms, that guy. And his, his sister Bernice, they come to, to pay respects to Festus, who's the new Roman governor. So these people are all working for Rome. And he comes, and so he's going to make his case before uh, Festus, which he does. A few days, uh, Festus consults King Agrippa. They, 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 make, they consult, and, and in chapter 25, verse 23, we saw last time Paul's defense before Herod Agrippa II. Um, 25-23 through 26-32. Uh, that's where we left off last time, where Paul was making his defense before uh, Herod Agrippa, who had come. And one reason that, uh, that Festus wanted to consult with Herod Agrippa was he said... I've got to write something to the authorities in Rome about what this man, why I'm, why I'm sending this man to Rome. What is he accused of? What is his crime that I'm sending him to Rome? And I, I, I'd appreciate, Agrippa, if you would look at this guy, talk to him, and see what the situation is. He says, verse 27 of chapter 25, I think it's unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charges. So then in chapter 26, we see... Uh, verse 1, we were looking at last time, where Paul gets up and he speaks. You have permission to speak, Agrippa said. So Paul begins his uh, uh, testimony. He gives his sort of biography here. And we have the third description, the third accounting of Paul's conversion. Paul begins by making certain uh, statements to Agrippa, say, I'm glad to be presenting my case before you. I know that you have, uh, you know, you you know, you're acquainted with Jewish customs and all this kind of thing. So he goes on and begins in verse four, and he says, you know, I grew up in a Jewish family. I was a Pharisee, the strictest sect. He says I was a guy who was persecuting Christians. Uh, I, I made it my mission in life to stamp out Christianity. Uh, I was a 
you know, I was zealous for the Jewish faith. And uh, I tried to oppose Jesus, verse 8. I even hunted down his followers. I put them to death. When, 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 they, when, they were, when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Remember, of course, Stephen, the starting of Stephen. I went to the synagogue, verse 11. And uh, I persecuted these people. But then verse 12, he says, I was on the way to Damascus because I was hunting Christians there. I was trying to find Christians in Damascus, this blasphemous sect, and I was going to bring them back to Jerusalem to stand trial. And guess what happened? I had this vision from heaven. You read Jewish literature, it says a lot that Jews were open a lot to visions from, from heaven, from, from people who said they had, God had spoken to them. Now, we're not. <laughs> now, the reason we're not is because we have sola scriptura. We believe that we have the Bible as the final authority. And since the end of the first century and the cessation of the miraculous gifts... God speaks to us only through Scripture. But obviously, some of our Christian brethren, some denominations, the Charismatics, they're very open, aren't they? You know, if somebody stands up and says, God has given me a message, if you're in a Charismatic church, what do you say? You have to say, okay. <laughs> who can say they're wrong, right? Who can, say, who can say they're wrong? You can't say they're wrong. Well, Judaism was like this too, naturally. There's no solo scriptura here. And at this time, there's no there's no final authority on Scripture. Scripture is being written here, as we speak. New Testament is the Old Testament, but not the New Testament. So, and God is giving visions, and God is speaking to people in dreams, and all this kind of stuff. So, so Jews were open to this. So, so Paul, what Paul says has to be listened to, and he says, you know, I had this, I was going to Damascus. And he says, uh, I was on the road about noon, verse 13, and we fell to the ground, and, and God spoke to me and said, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It's hard for you to kick against the goads. As I said, this was a common expression for opposition to the deity. And so, why are you persecuting me? He said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I'm Jesus. Verse 15, who you are persecuting. So uh, this is, you know, an unbelievable experience for the Apostle Paul, but he's trying to explain how I got where I'm at, from a guy who was persecuting Christians to now the chief evangelist for Christians, you know. I'm the Apostle of the Gentiles. So he's told, so Jesus told me to get up on my feet and go, you know, and so forth. I'm going to rescue from your own from your own people, and I'm sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes, verse 18. And to turn them from the power of Satan to God, so they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Well, uh, Agrippa, um, he says, Agrippa, I was not disobedient to this vision from heaven. I went to Damascus, then Judea, then to the Gentiles. I preached and so forth. They should repent. But when I was in the temple, the Jews seized me. But he goes on, God has helped me to testify to this very day, and, and so forth. Verse 24, at this point, Festus interrupted Paul's defense. You're out of your mind, Paul, he shouted. Your great learning is driving you insane. Uh, 
He says, I'm not insane, most excellent Festus. What I'm saying is true and reasonable. Now, what is, what is it that Paul has been saying here? Well, he's been talking about the fact that someone has risen from the dead. Verse 23, that the Messiah would suffer as the first to rise from the dead and would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. So, as I say here, it's, you know, Paul, Festus has had enough there. Okay, Paul, you know, I understand religion and all that kind of stuff. But it's insane to believe that anybody has ever risen from the dead. That's just insanity. You're out of your mind. So, that's not a surprising response, is it? That's the response. <laughs> that's the response of mostly all people. You know, that is their response. Now, People don't express that exactly today because we grew up in sort of a Christian culture. People know about Christianity. They know about the resurrection. They know about Easter and, and all this kind of stuff. But, but truly, people who are not Christian, they don't really believe in the resurrection of Christ. They don't really believe that. They, they scoff at that. Remember Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.23, the gospel is foolishness to the Gentiles. It's, it's really foolishness to most people. They, don't, they might not say it openly, but... It's just really a bunch of nonsense. No, no one's risen from the dead or anything like that. That's all there is. It's here. It's over with, you know. So uh, his response is not amazing when we think about uh, the, the response of the unsaved person, of the natural man, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2.14. But Paul says, no, this is not madness, verse 25. I'm not insane. This is true and reasonable. The king is familiar with these things. I'm convinced that now he's addressing Agrippa. Festus, the Roman governor, said, Paul, you're out of your mind. Paul addresses King Agrippa and says, listen, I know you're aware of these things. He says, verse 27, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Do you think that, you know, so, so he, he, he's, he's appealing to Agrippa here for, for support, you know, he, this charge of madness, I say here. Verse 20, page 45, 25 through 27. What Festus declared to be madness, Paul insisted was true and reasonable. Then he turned to Agrippa for support. The ministry of Jesus was widely known in Palestine, and Agrippa would have heard of it. Jesus' death and resurrection were well attested, and the Christian gospel had now been proclaimed for three decades. Certainly the king knew all these things because it was not done in a corner. And certainly the king believed the prophets, a belief that, as Paul saw it, inevitably brought one to Christ. So he's appealing, you know, to Agrippa, who should know these things, not Festus, who's a Roman governor who wouldn't know these things. He's appealing to him. But this is a little too embarrassing. He says, verse 28, Agrippa said to Paul, do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Do you really think that? I mean, you know, you can imagine, here's, as I say, here's... <laughs> But here's here's Agrippa in front of the Roman governor. He's not going to say yes. I believe you know this is a this all these dignitaries. Uh, you know whatever as I say whatever he thought about Paul's message personally, he was too worldly wise to commit himself in public to what others thought was madness. So he offered his own clever question. Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian, Paul? Do you think you really can in such a short time? This is uh, this is kind of a famous verse because of the King James translation here. Remember the King James translation says here, uh, "Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian." 
the King James has it, almost thou persuadest to me to be a Christian, and there's no question mark. Now, there's no question mark in the Greek text, so that's supplied by the translators. But when you read the King James, almost thou persuadest to me to be a Christian, um, it sounds like, you know, you almost got me, Paul. I'm almost, I'm almost persuaded. Remember the song. Almost persuaded. <laughs> yeah, there it is. But that's probably not what's going on here. It doesn't sound like that King Agrippa is almost persuaded. It sounds like he's trying to get back at Paul and, and save face here by saying, Paul, do you really think that a person like me is going to be persuaded to be a Christian in just this short time, just hearing you present these particular uh, things that you've been saying. Um, so I, that's not what Agrippa was saying, that he was almost persuaded here uh, in this particular case. Paul says, well, short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening would become what I am except for these chains. Verse 30, the king arose and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them after they left the room, they began saying to one another, this man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. Agrippa said to Festus, this man could have been set free if, it had not, if he had not appealed to Caesar. Kind of ironic, but there it is. Now let's look at Paul's journey to Rome, chapter 27 through the first part of chapter 28. The first part of the journey is from Palestine to Crete. Chapter 27, verse 1. Then it was decided that we would sail for Italy. Uh, this is a, we're picking up the we section again. Remember, Luke was with Paul when he comes at the end of that third missionary journey and he's at the temple. And then the we section stops. So we assume Luke is still around, traveling, whatever. Paul's in prison, but now he's there in Caesarea and he's leaving with Paul. Paul is given a lot of privileges here to go. Uh, we find that he is uh, has Luke with him and he also has Aristarchus, a man from Macedonia in verse 2, is with Paul. So Paul is a Roman citizen uh, and he's allowed apparently to take Luke and Aristarchus with him. Maybe Luke is his doctor and you know he's allowed to take a personal servant and so forth. He's given quite a lot of privilege here. Um which makes you wonder, people speculate. Was Paul known? Was he from an important family? I don't know. It's just it's just difficult to know here. But he certainly has allotted some privileges here. Uh, Paul and some other privileges were handed over to the centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. Um, there's some debate about exactly what this was. This was probably some troops stationed in Syria who were responsible for taking prisoners back and forth, transporting judicial proceedings and so forth, kind of a special police function, judicial function. This was a journey under the best circumstances of about five weeks. So if everything went well five weeks, probably takes Paul five months, as we'll see, to make this journey to Rome. But at the best, it would have been five weeks. So uh, Luke is there. We board a ship from uh, Adramidium, and uh, here's Adramidium. It's up here near Missy. It's not on this map. 
But the ship, they're boarding a ship that's going to come up the coast here and is going all the way up there. Now, they're going to change ships here and get another ship for Rome, but they're just on a ship to kind of get on the journey here and so forth. Now, they, in that day, they didn't sail just out across the Mediterranean here. Nobody sailed out across the Mediterranean. Remember, I've talked about this before. You're sailing west. Which direction does the weather come from? The west. You might There might be you know a big storm out here. You don't know what you're sailing out there to. You just don't sail out there in the middle of the water. You sail along the coast here in case something comes up. You can come into a port here. So everybody, nobody just sails out that way. Power back then. Huh? Those Detroit diesels didn't. Yeah, no, they did. They didn't. They didn't have it. So uh, they get on this ship sail uh, that's going up toward Missy, their Adramidium, uh, along the coast of the province of Asia. So they're coming up here, here along the coast of Asia, the way that Paul came down, actually. And that's that's the plan for the ship. <clears throat> they put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. So Paul. Luke and Aristarchus were there. Um, page 47 in our notes here. Um, I say here, while it's not explicitly stated, the port of the embarkation, embarkation was undoubtedly Caesarea. They were at Caesarea, undoubtedly. It doesn't say that, but that's clearly which way they were going. Um, they, uh, verse 3, the next day we landed at Sidon. So they do come up the coast here, probably from Caesarea, fairly sure, and they come up to Sidon. Um, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. Um, so Paul is allowed this, this uh, favor. As I say, Julius had probably been advised by Festus to be lenient with Paul. And, you know, Paul seems to make a pretty good impression on Julius as we go along here. Uh, but a soldier would always have been with him, even when he was in sight, and he wouldn't have been left alone. He's allowed to go to his friends, but he wouldn't be left alone, certainly, during this time there. Um, so they were providing for food, other necessities of life, and so forth. When you were in a Roman prison, or you were a Roman prisoner, you didn't. the Romans didn't provide much for you. They didn't give you three... Three cots in the cot. <laughs> you know, most people in Roman prisons, when they were in Roman prison, they usually died from starvation. They got usually one meal a day at the most. So it wasn't like you were there for 20 years living in luxury. You, you usually died there. And so uh, here's Paul getting provisions from his friends here inside and there. Uh, verse 4, from uh, there we put out to sea... And passed to the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. So they're passing to the north here. When we sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we landed at Myra in Lycia. So they come across to the north here because of the winds, and they land up here in Myra. Um, so they're kind of being sheltered here from the winds that are blowing, as I mentioned here, across the Mediterranean here. Um, there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy. Alexandria is down here. 
Remember, Rome got Alexandria. Rome got most of its grain from Egypt. Egypt was a very important province to Rome, and uh, the the emperor kept close control over that. But again, they didn't just sail off here like that. The grain ships came up the coast here, came around here like that to avoid sailing out in the weather like that. So they found a ship here that was going on, and they found it was going to Rome here. So they changed ships here, uh, making for the longer voyage. And they put us on board. Verse 7. We made slow headway for many days um, and had difficulty arriving off Nidus. When the wind did not allow us to hold course, we sailed to the lee of Crete opposite Salome. We moved along the coast with great difficulty and came to a place called the Fair Havens near the town of Lacia. So, this is, seems to be what happened to them. They were coming, as we see here, uh, uh, they were coming over here to Nidus here, but then the winds blew and blew them down. They were coming over this way. you know. Uh, they were coming over to Greece, coming to the Greece Islands over that way, but apparently a, a northeasterner came down here, northwest, and wind came down and something, and blew them so far south that they had to come into the south side of Crete there, uh, as it says here. We sailed to the lee of Crete opposite Salome. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called the Fair Havens near the town of Lassia. So uh, they entered this port here, the Fair Havens. Here's Lassia and here's the port here. So it's kind of a sheltered place on the south side here of Crete, some where they came in apparently in that direction. Um, verse 9, much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. As I mentioned here on page 48, navigation in this part of the Mediterranean was always dangerous after 14 September and was considered impossible after 11 November. The ship had lost valuable time since leaving Myra, and it was obvious that there was no hope of reaching Italy before winter. Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the chief festival of Judaism celebrated on the 10th of the lunar month, Tishri, between the latter part of September and the first part of October, was already passed. So Paul warned that disaster would befall them if they tried to go further. It sounds like Paul is giving more than just good advice here uh, because he says, verse 10, men can see that our voyage is going to be dangerous, disastrous, and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives also. So apparently, I, I would. this sounds like revelatory sort of information. It sounds more than just like Paul's the, the, the sailor or something. It's just reading the, the winds and all that. It's very specific here. And so, uh, so they're concerned about what to do. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, well, why, why would you listen to Paul? Who is this guy, right? Follow the advice of the pilot and of the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor 
in Crete, fa- Crete fa- facing both nor- southwest and northwest. So they hoped, apparently this was not a good place to winter in. They were going to just sail around the island here. It seems like a simple thing. They were just going to sail along the coast here and get into this little better port here, uh, this port of uh, Phoenix here is uh, apparently where they were planning to winter. So they were just going to wait out the winter, next three or four months, four months, and then sail out in the spring. So they didn't want to they didn't want to stay in this small open bay of they wanted to come to this place if they thought it was safer. Um, verse 13. We see the storm and the shipwreck here. Uh, when a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. I mean, the south wind would be good because, you know, this would kind of blow you in that direction. You know, you'd be, sound like you'd be pretty safe there. You'd be going in that direction. So things, things seem good. Uh, but before long, very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeasterners swept down from the island. So, you know, swept down across the island here, apparently. Starts blowing them this way. So, it blows them in that direction. They can't, they can't turn <laughs> as they want to here, apparently. Um, it says, um, um, the ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. Uh, we gave it, we gave way to it, and were driven along as we passed to the lee of a small island called Calda. We were hardly able to make the lifeboat itself secure, lifeboat secure. So they're trying, you know, they they they're, they're they just can't turn that direction. They've been driven by this wind and, uh, towards the coast of Africa here. Um. Um. So they. Uh, the men hoisted, uh, excuse me, um, we were able, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, verse 17. So the men hoisted it aboard, the lifeboat. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together because they were afraid they were going to run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis. So apparently there's some sandbars along here, north here, off the coast of Africa here, that they were afraid that they were going to, they were going to, uh, run aground there. And if you run aground out here, in the middle of the ocean, you know, what are you, what are you dead? You know, you're dead out there. There's no, there's no hope, no rescue at all. So that's the end. So they're, they're trying to hold the ship together. Um, they put these ropes apparently under the ship to try to keep it from breaking apart and so forth. Um, but apparently to no avail. Verse 18. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Now, what they're trying to do here, obviously, is they're trying to lighten the ship um, because, you know, there's no, they didn't have any way to get water out. There's no bilge pumps, you know, electric bilge pumps. There's no way to pump the water out. It's, it's spewing in, the rainwater's spewing in. They're afraid they're going to be sunk here, so they're trying to, to, to lighten the ship as much as they can. So they won't hit the sandbars, so they won't go down. Uh, I mean, they had they had, did have mechanical bilge pumps, but no modern bilge pumps like we have today that can pump at that kind of rate. 
So he says, Paul says, when neither, or Luke says, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and the storm was continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. Um, verse 21. After they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood up and said, Men, <laughs> you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. <laughs> I don't know. I just don't know about that statement, do you? <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Okay, that's true. They shouldn't take his advice not to sell from Crete, but, you know, I'm sure they didn't want to hear that right now. No, they, you, know, you know, you should have listened to me. <laughs> then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But keep your courage, because not one of you will be lost. Well, obviously, this is revelatory here. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night, an angel of God, whom I, to whom I belong, whom I serve, stood and said, Don't be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men. I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. So on the 14th night, we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea. When about midnight, the sailors sensed they were approaching land. So they're being driven across here. They're coming up to ultimately Malta here. They don't know where they're at here, but they're being driven across for 14 nights, days and nights, it says. Uh, for 14 days and nights. Can you imagine a storm like that? 14 days and nights? I was in a uh, storm once on a ship. Sickest I've ever been in my life. And that was like a day and a half. And I don't ever want to do that again. That was just, that was awful. But I just can't imagine 14 days and nights. It's just almost impossible to imagine. But that's what happened to them. And so uh, they, uh, they figured they were approaching land. They took soundings. And uh, eventually they, they, were, they were getting, obviously, the, uh, getting closer to land. Uh, the depth of the water was was uh, not as was not as great. Fearing that they, we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors. Verse twenty nine uh, from the stern and prayed for daylight. They were they were trying to stop from being dragged along because they were being dragged towards towards uh, uh, land, and they were afraid they would hit it at night. They would hit some reef, some rocks in the night, and they wouldn't be able to see. So they were trying to slow themselves down. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the life, sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower some anchors. <coughs> Paul said to the centurion, the soldiers, unless these men stay with the ship, they cannot be saved, verse 31. So the soldiers cut the ropes. They're listening to Paul here, aren't they? Cut the ropes, and the, the lifeboat <coughs> fell away, drifted away. So, uh, although he didn't listen last time, Julius listens this time. Uh, Paul, amazingly here, isn't it? He says, uh, after this happened, he took some bread, gave thanks to God in front of them. He broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. There were about 276 of us on board. Eating as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, verse 29, they did not recognize the land, but they saw a bay with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Luke cutting the anchors... They let them in the sea, and at the same time, they untied the ropes that were held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar, ran aground, 
The bow struck first, couldn't be moved. Stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. We read in Roman law a lot about this that, you know, I'm not sure how often it was carried out, but a prisoner who escaped, uh, if you allowed the prisoner to escape, you were subject to the same penalty of the prisoner. This is this was a common Roman idea. So it may have been they, they, they don't want to let these people escape because then they would be responsible for letting them escape. So they decide they're going to kill the prisoners. But the centurion wanted to spare Paul's life. So obviously the centurion is, you know, you wonder if he got saved or something here. Spares Paul's life, kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to the land the rest to get their own planks and on other pieces of the ship and this way everyone reached the land safely amazingly well they come ashore then they're at Malta as we saw there um, they, the place where they, we don't know where they landed at exactly but because the text doesn't say but tradition says they landed at this place and of course, it's named St. Paul's Bay today, but may have been there. But somewhere on Malta they land. Once they were on safely on shore, we found out that the land was called Malta. The islanders showed us a lot of kindness, it says. They built a fire, welcomed us. Paul, the great apostle, is gathering up this brushwood, trying to get some heat and so forth, and a viper gets him fastens on his hand, and the islanders say, okay. Uh, they said to each other, this man must be a murderer, for though he escaped from the sea, the goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. But Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. Um, this reference to Justice here is, many think, is a reference to the goddess of Justice the Greek goddess Dike, which is the goddess of justice, maybe her Phoenician counterpart, something venerated by the Maltese. But they assume, you know, God punishes evil, and so this man was a murderer, he escaped, but God has taken vengeance, the gods have taken vengeance, the god of justice has taken vengeance on him. But, verse 5, when Paul shook off the snake into the fire, suffered no ill effects, the people kept expecting him to swell up, die, well, when they watched him, you know, nothing unusual happened. They changed their minds. He's a god now. Uh, verse 7, there was an estate nearby and uh, belonged to Publius, the chief official. He welcomed us on his home, showed us generosity, hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed. Paul goes into him, prays over him, heals him. When this happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They were honored us in many ways, and we were ready to sail. They furnished us with supplies, the supplies that we needed. So Paul spends three months on Malta. Verse 11 says, after three months, we put out to sea. Um, and the only incident, of course, that Paul records there is uh, this healing of Publius, his father here. Um, and that's all that Luke tells us about on that particular time. So even though it was a good number of months there, three months that they spent. So after three months, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. 
It was an Alexandrian ship. Remember one of those Alexandrian ships that Paul had been on and been sunk? It was an Alexandrian ship that was wintering there. So it's interesting that it got to Malta and stopped. You know, we look at Malta and we say, well, that's just not far, you know. You could just you could just go right back up there to Italy. You know, why wouldn't you just jump up there, you know? <laughs> they weren't that great sailors, you know what I mean, in that sense. It was wintertime and they're not they're not sailing up here or anything, you know, in the wintertime. They stopped right there in Malta to wait out the winter. And so uh so Paul is able to and uh the soldiers are able to secure passage on this Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods Castor and Pollux. Um, as I say here, uh, according to uh, verse 11, according to Pliny the Elder, a Roman writer, navigation on the Mediterranean began each spring on 8 February when the westerly winds started to blow. Therefore, sometime in early or mid-February, we're thinking maybe, A.D. 60, Paul and his colleagues boarded a ship, the last leg of their voyage to Italy, after their shipwreck on Malta, perhaps in late October. So we think the shipwreck was sometime late in October, maybe early November, and then February here, four months or so later, they take off on the rest of their journey. The uh, twin brothers, Castor and Pollux, here in the in the mythology, you know, of of Greece, this were the sons of Zeus. They were the patrons of navigation. And their constellation in the sky was a sign of, was a good fortune when it was seen in the storm. So it was uh, favored by sailors, of course. Well, it says, uh, so they take off from uh, Malta. We put in at Syracuse. So they come to Rome here. They travel from Malta to Syracuse first. And we stay there three days um, on the east coast of Sicily here. From there, we set sail and arrived at Regium. They sail right up to the tip of Italy there. Um, And they're waiting. The next day, the south wind came up, so they're waiting for for a breeze to come up so they can continue to sail north here. Uh, on the next day, a breeze did come up, it says. The south wind came up, and on the following day, we reached Putaoli. So here's, they go all that distance here. I say 180 miles in only two days. So they really had a nice wind there. Take them right up the coast, right where they were on a dock, and get off and get on land then. Um, there we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them. And so we came to Rome. So remember, there were Christians in Rome already. Paul has already written his epistle to the Romans two and a half years earlier. At least two and a half. 56, 57. This is about 60, maybe three years earlier. Uh, at the end of that third missionary journey. He's writing to the church at Rome. There's already a church there. Paul didn't establish the church. There's Christians there. Uh, when he writes that letter to the Romans, Aquila and Priscilla are already back there. Remember in our studies, we noticed when Paul comes to Corinth in Acts 18, he meets Aquila and Priscilla. 
And they traveled to Ephesus with him. And they stayed there for a while. But then when Paul writes Romans, around 56, 57, they're back in Rome. If you read the end of Romans, he greets them. They're back in Rome. So there were people that Paul probably knew in Rome, who knew about him, may have known him. After Paul's been throughout the Roman world. He's been in all these cities of Rome. And people have been saved, and they have probably come to Rome. So Paul is not unknown or anything like that, I'm sure. People know about the apostle and so <clears> forth. <throat> so it says, we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them. We wonder sometimes maybe why the Roman soldiers would be willing to stay a week. Um, maybe it was because they needed to rest up after the trip. Maybe they needed to secure some things, get passage to Rome, or whatever happened. We don't know why a whole week here, but for some reason, Paul was, they, they stayed a whole week here. Um, the brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming, and they traveled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three tra- taverns to meet, meet us. So there's the market or the Forum of Appius and the three taverns. And then on to Rome. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was couraged. When we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. Uh, people usually mention this because generally there were always two soldiers guarding someone. Here's one soldier. So Paul is given some free, some liberty, some freedom here. He's obviously not seen as a very seditious person. He's not seen as a as a as a you know a criminal who's going to kill somebody or do something terrible. Uh, he's just waiting for the court case to come up and for the authorities to decide what to do. But at verse sixteen, when we got to Rome, Paul was allowed to live. There's the end of the we section, and uh, Paul is at Rome. Rome at last twenty eight seventeen through 31. Well, we have a couple of things there. Paul meets with the Jewish leaders. I just put up a a diagram of Rome, the city of Rome, and so forth. Very large city. million people is the estimated population. Um, Maybe larger than that after the time of Paul, but somewhere around a million people. Tremendously large city for that period of time. And uh, It says in verse 17 that uh, Paul meets here. Three days later, the local Jewish leaders came. They assembled, and Paul said, My brothers, although I have done nothing against the people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over the Romans. They examined me, wanted to release me, because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you, talk with you. It's because of the hope of Israel that I'm bound with this change. They replied, we have not heard, we have not received any letters from Judea concerning you. And none of our people who have come from there has reported or said anything bad about you. But we want to hear you, what your views are. For we know that people everywhere are talking against this sect, this sect of Christianity. So... um, so they say we haven't gotten any information concerning you from Judea. It's hard to know exactly what to make of that. Some people think that that they're not being 
totally honest that why wouldn't the Jewish leaders by this time have contacted Rome? Paul was in prison in Caesarea. Well, of course, Paul was in prison, but he only was just sent recently, and he was on that ship. It would take a while for just a normal person to get from Caesarea, from Judea, to Rome and all that kind of thing. So that may, it may just be that Paul has gotten there quicker than they could have gotten there, and they haven't heard anything from Jewish authorities in Jerusalem about Paul. It's, 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 I think it's certainly possible. We don't know for sure. But anyway, there is a second meeting uh, with the Apostle Paul. Verse 23, They arranged to meet with Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. So Paul's under house arrest, providing for himself here. Obviously, he's being supported, helped by Christians in Rome. He witnessed to them from morning till evening. I'd love to hear that. Explaining about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and from the prophets, he tried to persuade them about Jesus. I mean, we can think about the law of Moses. Moses talked about Deuteronomy, that prophet who's going to come after me, this great prophet who's going to come and be greater than me. We can think about the prophets and what they said about the Messiah and Isaiah. You know, we can think about some things like that. It'd be interesting to hear Paul's, how Paul put that all together, wouldn't it? Some were convinced by what he said. Others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through Isaiah the prophet, I'm going to quote Isaiah chapter 6 here, Go to this people and say, you will, ever, you will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become callous. They hardly hear with their ears and they close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles and they will listen. This sounds a lot like Romans 9, 10, and 11 in many ways, doesn't it? Because Paul is saying there that that the Jews, this is the way the Jewish nation has responded. They basically rejected their Messiah, didn't they? And uh, God has now turned to the Gentiles. He's grafted them in. But one day, he'll turn back to the Jews again uh, in the future with the coming of Christ, the millennium, and so forth. Verse 30, for two whole years, Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him, proclaimed the kingdom of God, and taught about the Lord Jesus with all boldness, without hindrance. We don't know why Acts ends right here. Why does Acts end right at this point? Why does it end with Paul's death or with Paul's release? Uh, We wonder about that. Uh, some people say, well, <clears throat> Paul, uh, Luke finished writing his book right at this point while Paul is there under house arrest and he finishes it and he publishes it and so forth. That may be the case. Some say that uh, Luke was only interested in getting Paul to Jerusalem. Remember the, the, what Paul, what Luke has been interested in is this course from Jerusalem to Rome. How did the gospel get from Jerusalem to Rome? And he's not been concerned about all kinds of other history and all kinds of other events. Just how did the gospel get from Jerusalem to Rome, Theophilus? Here's how it got here. And once it's there, maybe that's the end of 
And that's all that Luke wants to say at this particular point. We, we don't know exactly why that is. We do think there is more to Paul's story than that. And there are several reasons for that. I have an addendum here. The fourth missionary journey, Acts AD 62 to 68. Now see, there's nothing in Acts that would indicate that Paul's life ended immediately after his imprisonment in Acts 28. Instead, there is reason to believe that the apostle made a fourth missionary journey after being released from his Roman imprisonment in AD 62. Some evidence, various evidence supports such a conclusion. And I'm going to put a map up here, and there's a map on the next page, 51, that kind of shows what I'm going to show here on the slides. Various evidence supports the conclusion that Paul got out of prison and he made other journeys. One, Paul's intention to go to Spain. Now, intention is not reality, but he did intend it. In Romans 15, he talks about, I want to come to Rome, and I want you to be the, to be the base of my support as I go to Spain. Two, Eusebius. Eusebius is a famous church historian, the earliest church historian writing in the 300s. He says uh, that Paul was released from his first Roman imprisonment and made another missionary journey. Now, that's not scripture, but it may be true. Three, some statements in early Christian documents say that Paul preached the gospel in Spain. Many, many early documents talk about that. There are also statements in the epistles that don't line up with Acts. Paul makes a number of statements in Acts that you, uh, in the epistles that don't fit with any of his journeys in the book of Acts. They sound like they're describing other journeys. So you could come up with a possible... I forgot to mention that when Paul was in prison, he wrote the 7, 8, 9, 10 epistles, uh, uh, Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, I mean, Philemon and Philippians. Uh, that's on the notes there page 50, but I forgot to mention. But you could you could hypothesize this based upon statements he makes in his writings. So, we could say Paul was released in AD 62, let's say. And then, Roman says, he talks about he wants to go to Spain. That's, that's only wishing that he wants to go to Spain, but nevertheless, he could have gone to Spain. Titus 1.5 says, For this reason I left you in Crete, that you would set in order what remains. Now there's nothing in the book of Acts about Titus being left in Crete. There's nothing, nothing at all in the book of Acts. We see Titus in the book of Acts. He's going to Corinth. We, he talks In 2 Corinthians he talks about sending to Corinth and, and so forth. But there's nothing in there about Crete at all. So this, we think, could be after that you know, Paul comes to Crete and he leaves Titus there. Uh, Erastus remained at Corinth, but Trophimus I left sick at Miletus. Well, again, we don't, you know, know exactly how to jive that with the book of Acts. So theory is maybe he went up to Miletus. At the same time, also prepare me a lodging. This is writing to Philemon. For I hope that through your prayers I will be given to you. Remember, he's writing Philemon when he is in prison, when he's under house arrest. But he hopes to go back there. Maybe he did. Maybe he went to, this would be Colossae here on the map. Fleeman, remember, was a man from Colossae. As I urged you upon my departure from Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus. Now again, that statement won't fit in the book of Acts at all. There's no way to put this, this Paul telling Timothy, when I departed from Macedonia, I want you to remain on at Ephesus. That didn't happen. Paul didn't remain 
In the book of Acts, Timothy didn't remain at Ephesus when Paul and so forth. So people hypothesized that maybe Paul went to Ephesus. He urged Timothy to remain there. Um, there's evidence historically of Timothy remaining in Ephesus, uh, actually. Uh, goes on to Philippi, maybe. I trust in the Lord that I will come to Philippi shortly. This is Philippians, when he's in prison, house arrest. As I urged you uh, upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus, 1 Timothy 1.3. That's that same thing, but he says, from my departure to Macedonia. So Paul is in Ephesus. He's going to Macedonia. I want you to remain there in Ephesus. So that might be that. He makes this statement. Make every effort to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Well, that's nothing in the book of Acts like that at all. So maybe he went there for the winter. According to reliable tradition, Rome, Paul was martyred in Rome. And that may be true. It's just tradition, but it's a strong tradition that Paul was rearrested and that he was uh, had his head cut off at Rome. Now, this, in this second tradition, he was put in the what's called the Mamertine prison. The term Mamertine is just a name for the prison that was given to it in the Middle Ages. It wasn't the name in Paul's day. It was just a prison. But if you go there, if you go to Rome, you will go. That's one of the places you go to the Mamertine prison. And uh, tradition says, remember it's just tradition, that this is the place where Paul's life ended. Um, in the Mamertine prison, prisoners were dropped down through a manhole. So you didn't exactly escape, you know. <laughs> you got a big hole. <laughs> And you get, you know, they drop you down into the prison. And, you know, it's not exactly easy to escape, is it, from there in a maritime prison. Now, there's a modern stairway today, so if you go there, you don't have to drop down through a rope. You can walk down the steps and go down there. But this may be where Paul wrote that statement. Remember 2 Timothy 4? For I am ready, already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Would that we could say that at the end of our lives, wouldn't it? That we've fought the good fight. We've finished the course. I have kept the faith. So it may be that that is where Paul's life ended. At least tradition says it is. And it's very possible. Well, there it is. 8.15. We finished right on time. <laughs> All right. Not bad for a rookie. Not bad. Thank you very much. Ha, <laughs>